Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Legendarium Podcast. I am your host, Craig Hanks, here with another uh, an interview episode. And I'm getting a little bit tired of these ones that uh, that make me feel simultaneously stimulated and wildly inferior. But we're diving into it anyway. I'm here with David Schlaper. David, how are you? Hey, n- nice to meet you, Craig. Glad to be here. I'm doing well. Good, good. Now, David Schlaver is the author of, uh, I, I want to get this right, The Far Northern Land Saga. Uh, exactly. Three books so far. Uh, and we're going to be talking about those books. Now, The Far Northern Land Saga, what can that possibly be referring to? Well, I I would try to give your whole bio, David, but I'm just going to say this. You are uh, you're a foreign service officer with the U.S. government, and you have been stationed in the past in Finland um, yes. and that and you fell in love with Finland and its culture and myths and all of that. And, and that's what you have based a lot of this writing on. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, lived in Helsinki for four years while I was assigned to the U.S. Embassy. Um, and that's definitely the period of time that I did a tremendous amount of research into Finnish mm. folklore, culture, language, um, and set about the early stages of what eventually became this this trilogy. Okay. So, and let me ask you this, is it a trilogy or uh, do you plan on going on with it? Or is it three and I'm out? Uh, yeah. So the three <laughs> books that, that and, you know, I just wrapped up the third one. That is definitely a, a, a true trilogy, one story, right? Beginning and end, mm. et cetera. Um, there would not be, there probably wouldn't be any sequels, but the possibility of prequels set in mm. the same world are definitely there. So I'm okay. thinking about it. I, I laughed because I saw the look on your face and, and it's a, a look a lot of authors get like, oh, gosh, don't ask me. I haven't decided. I, I don't know yet. <laughs> so, that's perfect. That's perfect. Um, now, I, I do want to talk about your books uh, and, and we will, I'm sure, as the conversation goes. Uh, but I kind of want to approach this from a different angle first. You are a, a, a you're a, a diplomat, a foreign services officer. and you are also an author, a, a fantasy author. Now, square that circle for me. How do you go okay. from one to the other? How do you have time for this? Uh, how right. how did that work exactly? Where did that come from? The the author yeah, part of you this. Know, I, I think that um, I'm not sure about the author part as far as uh, being a fan of fantasy literature. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd be surprised probably at how many Foreign Service officers are really big fantasy fans. So it kind of, I don't know, goes with the personality or goes with the territory. But, um, you know, in my case, um, I think it just all, all goes back to my childhood. Um, I started writing at a very early age. I just really enjoyed doing it. Uh, maybe part of it was because my mom was an English teacher. And mm. so she was like drilling me when I was three years old or something <laughs> to, you know, start, start reading. Um, and I kind of fell in love with myth and folklore and stuff like that at a very early age. Um, and so when I was younger, I kind of, you know, made some tentative things like teenagers do or, you know, kids do writing a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Uh, but uh, everything kind of came together for me, um, as I mentioned previously, when I was when, when I got this assignment to Finland um, and I, I really wanted to go to Finland. Um, it was an incredible opportunity for me. 
Um, when I was a little kid, my parents had all these sets of, of books, these time life books. Remember those? Mm, and oh, yeah. one of them, one of them was uh, called, I think, Folklore of the World. Okay. And so it had a lot about Roman myth, Greek myth. Uh, there was a lot of Native American and indigenous peoples uh, that were in there. And there were four or five pages about Finnish myth um, and something called the Kalevala. Yeah. So not a lot of people have heard of the Kalevala. And, and one of the things I hope my books oh, would do you are, is spark you are barking up. You're barking up the right tree here. Yeah, okay. Okay. yeah a whole bunch I, of Kalevala fans. <laughs> that, that's great. That's fantastic. And so, you know, that's when I learned about the Kalevala, which is, uh, you know, the Finnish national epic, as they say, right? Mm. This collection of oral myths and traditions and legends that were collected by an ethnographer in the 19th century and written down for the very first time. And then these amazing characters, I mean, this is what Tolkien, you know, drew on mm -hmm. his source material, both for the languages that would become the Elvish languages, Sindarin and Quenya, et cetera, and also for a lot of the stories uh, and a lot of the, uh, the narratives that he wove into the Silmarillion uh, and even some in the Lord of the Rings. Um, and so I fell in love with that. I was fascinated by it, right? This is way pre-internet, so that's all I had, you know, those four pages with these amazing illustrations um, and always tried to learn more uh, about the Kalevala uh, and, and a little bit about Finnish language. And then this opportunity came and I was able to go to Helsinki. Um, and I was able to join the Kalevala Society, right? I studied Finnish for an entire year at the Foreign Service Institute before yeah. going to Helsinki. I was the only student that entire year. Uh, sometimes I didn't even have a student. Uh, and so that was like a singularly, you know, lonely experience. Uh, I, could, I, could, I could speak with my teacher really well at the end of that year. When I got to Helsinki, I, I still couldn't communicate with anyone. But, oh, yeah. um, you know, all of that came together and it gave me an opportunity, uh, which not that many Americans have, right? In Finland, in Helsinki, to immerse myself in that world and to study it and to think about it. Um, I had already written articles uh, and things like that uh, about Tolkien, about Finnish, about language, etc. And it just kind of came together. And that is when the genesis of this, this, th this project and this saga, because it was a saga for me too, came together. Um, and I started at the very end of the tour that I was there to put pen to paper uh, and then to, uh, to create the story and, and the world. Yeah. You know, there are so many things I can uh, riff on with what you just said. Uh, I'll go back to something you said earlier that, that people would be surprised how many people in the Foreign Service are fantasy fans or writers or, you know, yeah. kind of obsessed with this stuff. It's funny you say that because uh, I, I'm speaking to you from Salt Lake City and or nearabouts. And I remember when I went to school at BYU, hearing stories about BYU, the University of Utah, Weber State, and the immense amount of recruiting that the State Department and the CIA and the NSA would do in Utah because they just loved uh, the foreign experience that all these former missionaries had had right. with yeah, the languages exactly. and the living abroad. And, uh, and it's probably no coincidence that... Uh, Utah always, always ranks number one as the nerdiest state in the nation. <laughs> always. It's, it's not even close. <laughs> so, Outstanding. Uh, Outstanding. So we are, 
It's yeah, great. we're we're kindred spirits, I'm sure, in many ways. Um, so, I, I'm if this this conversation is going to present a lot of difficulty for me not to just get sucked into the Tolkien rabbit hole. Everybody uh, who listens to this show knows uh, how much of a, a Tolkien aficionado I am, but I do want to talk about that a little bit. If is that part of your background and why you were drawn to this? Because I know it has been for me. I love Tolkien. I have loved him since I was 15. And uh, and when I was in college, I remember picking up a Finnish grammar. Uh, I abandoned it pretty quickly, but I did pick it up and learned a little bit about it, read through much of uh, the Kalevala, uh, the story of Kalervo. People might know yeah. that through the the story of Turin Turambar, um, it, that that sort of thing. So I was I was kind of drawn toward Finnish uh, language and culture, uh, at least to a small degree. Is that the path that you took or was yours maybe the other way around? Yeah, it's very, very similar, actually. So I think we are kindred spirits. Um, and your question is, is spot on. Um, when I got to college, that was the first time that I ever had access to a copy of the Kalevala. Mm. Um, and, you know, I was a huge uh, Tolkien fan. You read The Lord of the Rings when I was in fifth or sixth grade, I guess, and just, you know, went on from there. So by the time I was in college, I had already read, you know, The Silmarillion, uh, the history of Middle Earth was starting, you know, to come out at that time. And so I was devouring all that as it came out. Um, and when I when I got to college and I began to read the Kalevala for the first time, um, even though scholars, other individuals had had you know written about this or commented about it. I was unaware of it. I was reading the story of Calervo, right? Mm -hmm. And I kind of knew about the connections between Tolkien and Finnish from articles I had read and you know snippets here and there. But I started to read that and I'm like, this this is this Turin. This is Turin Turumbar, right? It was so obvious to me. Um, and, you know, kind of funny, right? This 21 year old having a, <laughs> this, this, uh, whatever, a cathartic experience or, you know, oh my God, this is where it came from as if nobody else was aware of that. Oh, that's uh, the, but, that's the uh, joy of youth. But David. It, it, it was amazing, right? It. Exactly. I discovered this, you know, I have <laughs> seen this. Um, and, and the connection between the two for me really started there. Uh, so, um, yeah, I had like notebooks and everything where I was actually writing. Here is uh, a, a narrative or maybe something was that, that's descriptive or whatever that I found in the Kalevala that seems to be an analog or an influence to something in Tolkien's world. Um, it could be linguistic, and I did try mm. to study a little bit of Finnish on my own, um, and I saw the connections, especially the way that Tolkien wove something called vowel harmony into his languages, and Finnish mm. language is completely based upon uh, this concept as well. Um, and, and then again, just the narratives and the characters, you know, there's a little bit of Vinamoinen and Gandalf. There's a whole lot of Vinamoinen and Tom Bombadil, mm. uh, which was, you know, the character that he created for his kids at first. 
Um, some of Tolkien's writings that aren't as well known, like the Father Christmas letters and everything, you know, absolutely, you can see the Kalevala, you can see Finnish folklore, you can see all of that, you know, in those stories. That's what he was reading at that time, and that's what he was adapting for his kids. So it's really neat. It's really cool. I have written a couple of articles on this. It's been a while, about 10, 15 years ago, had a couple of articles published and 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 that did inform you know what I what I did later then um, obviously in in my own work to some extent. Yeah, if you if somebody came to you and said, "Hey, you speak so passionately about the Kalevala, and I kind of want to dig into it and uh, try it myself," how would you recommend that they go about doing that? Do you go to the library, grab a copy, and start at page one, or do you have stories uh, that you point people toward as an entry point? Um, hey, you know, try this and, and see if you like the flavor of it. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, probably so. And I, I think what I would tell folks is just like to flip around a bit, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not as accessible starting at page one and reading all the way through. Um, you know, it's, it's, I, I've read some of it in Finnish. It's very difficult for me to do, although it's certainly <laughs> improved by Finnish by, by trying to do that. <laughs> Um, but it is that when you're reading an English translation, sometimes even a very good one, the language is going to be somewhat stilted. Uh, it's very, very literary. Um, I think for younger people in particular, it's not going to be a voice, let's say, that they're very used to. Um, it's not quite like reading Shakespeare. Uh, but I, there are certain stories, um, I think, that do really stand out. The story of Calervo is one. Uh, there are lots of proverbs that are really fascinating. There are lots of origin stories that are really important in Finnish myth and that are really cool. The origin of beer, you know, the origin of you know, snow and winter weather, etc., and the personification uh, of the main antagonist in the Kalevala, uh, Lohi. I would tell folks, just go ahead, start at the beginning. You'll get a little bit of an idea of what Finnish magic is all about because it's about singing, right? That is the whole thing of the Kalevala. Spells are cast, magic yeah. is made, magic is done through singing. Wizards are singers. You know, the Finnish word for singer is literally the word that is used uh, for a wizard, for a magic user. Yeah. Um, and the Finns that would tell these stories, they were chanting basically as they told them, you know, the oral tradition or whatever. They would do something where shamans would like join, you know, arms and they would call it joiking, you know, moving back and forth, shaking back and forth as they chanted this. You'll get a little feel for that in the beginning and then you can kind of flip around. If you find one of the sections, and some of them are fairly short, that uh, this is just a little boring, I'm not really getting into it, that's fine. Go ahead and go right past it. You know, go to uh, the next or two or, or three of the, uh, they're called uh, cantos, uh, forward, and all of a sudden, bam, you'll find some amazing story that is a little bit more of a prose narrative that will just blow you away with like amazing characters, again, really cool proverbs, um, and I think picking and choosing like that is a really neat way to go through it for anyone that has never experienced it uh, and doesn't quite know what it is. It, it's not a it's not a prose story, right? That's not right. the Kalevala. It's thick. It's about six or seven hundred pages. It's divided into all these different chapters. Some of them are self-contained. 
Some of them will be a narrative arc, though, right? Four mm. or five chapters like the Calervo arc of one epic story, you know, one Gilgamesh kind of story um, and just really cool stuff. You know, yeah, it reminds me of the way I, I, I did a video on YouTube a few years ago, how to read the Silmarillion for the first time. And this reminds yeah. me very much of that. My The gist of my video was essentially reset your expectations. <laughs> you're not going right, to, yeah. you're not, you're not reading a novel, right? So you, there, it's a different method of reading that you have to employ. To you have, you to have to think, it. and I, I, I don't want to go into Tolkien too much either, but you have to think that the Silmarillion, just the, the structure was heavily influenced by his reading of the right. Kalevala, right? This high literary, biblical, you know, almost kind of fantasy that mirrors what the Kalevala is all about. I'm sure that there is, uh, that it was an antecedent, as it were. Yeah. Last Kalevala question for you. Do you have a favorite story? The one that you think about or go back to a well that you continually dip into? It is the Calervo story, so yeah. I hate to keep coming back to that, but it, it's just, it, it's such an epic story, right? I mean, this kind of downtrodden slave, basically, uh, and and this huge revenge fantasy uh, as he goes about his life and his story uh, ending in absolute tragedy, you know, worthy of any Shakespearean tragedy or Greek tragedy. Um, I think it's just a really, really fascinating narrative or a really cool story. Excellent. Well, let's um, I, I, I'm tempted to stay in Finland because, uh, like I said, I'm so fascinated by it. Um, I, oh, uh, do I want to do it? No, no, we're leaving Finland. Let me, let me do this. <laughs> so you were stationed there for, you said, four years. Uh, four years since yeah. moved on, you've been all over the place, really. Right now, you are in uh, Poland, right? In Poland, uh, I'm in Krakow at this moment, yeah. Yeah, and you're there because you were stationed in Kiev for the last couple of years, and anybody who's been paying attention at all knows why you're now in Poland. Um, and so you're, you're there now, are you getting the same experience either with Ukrainian culture or with Polish culture or anywhere else that you've been? Have you had that same kind of immersion, uh, that desire to really dig into a culture and, and learn about it the way you did in Finland? Yeah, certainly. Um, I think it's a really important part of being a foreign service officer, um, if, if you're going to um, really understand any country, um, you have to be at least somewhat conversant um, in its history, uh, in its deep culture. Folklore is a really big part of that. And mm -hmm. since I'm so interested in myth and folklore, whenever, before I've gone to any country, any assignment, um, and I've served in Brazil, in Mexico, in Finland, uh, in Japan for four years, in Tokyo, in Iraq, in Romania, uh, and now in Ukraine, and kind of going back and forth between Ukraine and Poland. So one of the first things that I do is to do research into folklore and mythology um, and kind of try to get an idea of what that can tell me about the contemporary culture uh, and motivations, let's say, and drivers you know, of that people today, circa 2023, as it were. Um, I think a lot of Foreign Service officers do that. That's one of the cool things about myths or folklore. It is a window into that culture, you know, and, and, and into those people. It's a temporal window 
because you're, you're, you're looking at kind of a, you know, a, a, a misty lens from the past to a certain extent. But the mere fact that it still exists in the present and is, you know, reinterpreted all the time as the generations go by, by the cultures and the people themselves, I think has a very contemporary application as well. I don't think it's just dusty history, so to speak. Um, there may be an element of that, but I think that it's a very real and lived experience for people. So, yeah, in Ukraine, I was loving it. I was really getting into it um, and, and really starting to study both Ukrainian and Russian, you know, folklore. I'm a big fan of it's uh, Catherine Arden, uh, her series, which mm. is kind of like mine, except she's looking at Russian folklore. Um, and it's very similar in Ukraine. Um, and it's one of the tragedies, you know, of the war uh, that Ukrainian national existence is just under threat. Right. It's an right. existential threat. Um, you can very much see that and feel that. And in my case, I mean, it's a small thing compared to the horrible tragedy that's taken place. But I certainly was very disappointed that, you know, I didn't have an opportunity to live there in peacetime for an extended period um, and to do that type of immersion that I've been able to do in a yeah. Finland or in a Japan. You know, I was in Tokyo for so long um, and in Yokohama um, and was really able to connect in a lot of ways with uh, local culture. So if someone, I have my own answer to this question, by the way, but if someone were doing the reverse, a foreign service officer from another country comes to the U.S. Uh, and you wanted to get them on a, a diet of this sort of thing, learning about the national culture, the character, the mythology, the history or whatever, what would you point them toward in American culture? Uh, yeah, it, it, it's like one of the most. Yeah, it's one of the most difficult questions, right? Because the United States is a different kind of country, right? Um, exactly. And so we we don't have that, you know, whatever you would call it, holistic culture mm -hmm. that has more or less been extant with you know one ethnic group, one religion, one whatever, mm -hmm. going back a thousand years or two thousand years. Um, it's really different. Uh, but I think there are some really cool things that are uniquely American. I think a lot of that is, is going to come more from the, the earlier days, the founding period, or maybe the 19th century. You think about characters that we have, and they're kind of regional, but a Johnny Appleseed, right? Or a Paul, or a Paul Bunyan, Bunyan. Yeah, there you and, go. and things like that. Um, and, you know, they're, they're funny stories, but I think that Certainly one real characteristic of, of Americans that almost everyone would identify is this individualism, right? Mm -hmm. Rugged individualism, if you want to <laughs> you know, refer to it as, as such, but just that focus upon liberty, right? That focus right. upon the individual, um, how that stems from the early experience of, uh, you know, the interaction and clash of cultures between the indigenous populations, Native Americans, you know, settlers coming from Europe, etc. Uh, the massive wave of immigration during the 19th century uh, from Europe during the Industrial Revolution, uh, uh, waves of immigration coming from Latin America now uh, and adding, you know, its own unique flavor to that American tapestry, so to speak. Um, I think all of that really gets back to this promise of the United States of being a place where an individual can at least try to do right uh, what he or she wants to do uh, with a degree of autonomy 
that not very many cultures, societies, whatever, um, have ever achieved previously. And, and so I think some of the old myths and tales that we have, you just see that, that autonomy, that liberty, that, that whatever. And I would point individuals, I think, to stories like that um, and myths and tales like that um, as a good way to uh, uh, even understand Americans even to this day. That's what Alex de Tocqueville did. Remember de Tocqueville, oh, Democracy yeah. in America? That's exactly what he did, you know, when he wrote those amazing volumes that you read them today and they're just as applicable today as they were, you know, when he wrote them. And those are the exact stories and tales that he refers to as he's trying to describe to Europeans these insane Americans, <laughs> you know, they've taken everything we've given them but they've twisted it in this bizarre way and you won't believe it and, uh, yeah it's uh it's uh, it's a good read and it, it, he, he was a pretty humorous guy actually and it's uh quite humorous in some places too it's been a while yeah. since i read to tocqueville uh, since yeah. college really so uh, yeah. that's yeah. one i should revisit if if someone were to, were to ask me that question westerns go yeah. W yeah watch or read a bunch of westerns and it really captures uh i think our our cultural spirit in some way. Because you're a rugged individual, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah, John Wayne would never stand for this, whatever this is. Right. That's right. <laughs> uh, so let me let me go back across the pond then. Okay, so that was a fun diversion. But with all of your experiences in all of these different countries, have you, uh, we have the Far Northern Land saga that centers on uh, Finnish culture and myth. You pulled a lot from that. Did you pull from anywhere else or do you plan to uh, have any other cultures grabbed you in that same way and made you want to put pen to paper in the way you have with this trilogy? Um, yeah, um, I have pulled from other sources. Um, just sticking for a moment with this trilogy it's it's based in the Kalevala, but I think as an author and as a writer, um, there are going to be many different influences upon you that you're going to take uh, and, and mold and weave into your work regardless of where they came from. Mm. Um, I'm a really big fan of Russian literature, classic literature. So Tolstoy so, so you and Dostoevsky. And Gogol, exactly, right? You don't you like know? joy? You don't like I, happiness? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, you know, crime and punishment, it's all. That's right. And, and both characters, characterization, um, and maybe even some vignettes in my stories were definitely influenced uh, by Russian literature. Um, here's another one I'll throw at you that sounds just like this non sequitur or whatever, The Battle of Gettysburg. Hmm. And uh, the book, The Killer Angels by Sh 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 Shinar Shinara, I'm blanking on the author's oh, Terry name. Brooks. It was a Terry Brooks. You know, that was the uh, book that the film Gettysburg uh, that Ted Turner made, you know, back in the 90s was based upon. Um, and um, that hmm. that story of that battle and in particular of. Robert E. Lee making the horrible decisions that he made during the battle, right? Mm -hmm. In particular, that tragic charge, right? Pickett's charge, 15,000 men across an open field, you know, with cannons just blazing at them. Absolutely no chance for success. But that desire uh, of his for the war to end on that day, right? Kind of that all or nothing type of gamble. 
stemming from this desire to stop this river of blood, that actually heavily informed one vignette uh, mm. and, and one scene in my series. And apart from literary influences, there's a lot of things that I've done as a foreign service officer uh, that, that wound up in the books. Um, and I'll just mention one of them as an example. And it's something, unfortunately, I've been dealing with again over the course of the past year, year and a half. Um, and these are times when I have been working with refugee populations, hmm. uh, refugee populations that were fleeing violence, refugee populations that were in uh, temporary camps or kind of these liminal type of stages, right? Torn away from their homeland, from their motherland, uh, you know, thrown into incredibly difficult circumstances, families broken up, you know, no communication, no resources, no idea where they're going um, in, in several different points of my career. And, and one that really influenced me was working with some populations along the border of Thailand and Burma and refugees spilling from Burma. These were Highland tribe refugees, basically, the Karin people, the Kachin people, the Shan people. Um, and speaking with some of them, uh, going out with USAID workers and other assistance delivery workers uh, into these temporary camps where they were being herded, basically, listening to their stories and, and kind of seeing their plight, that really informed um, quite a large narrative arc, actually, in the Far Northern Land Saga, uh, and in particular, some very specific vignettes where what I'm describing in the book, you know, it's snow and reindeer or whatever, but <laughs> right. very much what I'm doing is channeling what I heard and what I saw and what I experienced in the emotions that I saw reflected in the faces and in the voices and stories of these Highland tribes people that I was working with. So I think influences, whether they're literary, folkloric, or influences of just things I've done and seen, uh, particularly in times of real crisis as a foreign service officer, um, ha has informed my writing very heavily. You know, this is reminding me of um, uh, a, a bit of creative advice that you might give somebody. I was just listening to a podcast. It was uh, Craig Ferguson, the, the comedian and yeah. host, and he was interviewing Shirley Manson, the lead singer of Garbage. This uh, it, They were very popular in the late 90s. Um, and it, she, he was asking her about going out on tour and what she did on tour. And he asked her if he says, when you're on tour, do you kind of stay in the tour bubble? You know, just stay on the bus, go to the venue, go to the hotel and then go to the next city. Or do you go out? And she says, oh, yeah, this this drives my security guy crazy because I have to go out. I, I just love to, you know, hey, if I'm in Buenos Aires, I've got stuff to see. I've got things I want to do. Right. And so wherever she goes, she says, I, I'm, I will always want to go out and see things and talk to people and experience uh, that locality. Uh, and she was talking about it, keeping her creative process fresh, because as soon as you ensconce yourself in a bubble, uh, things get stale pretty quick. And so I only bring that up because <laughs> hearing you talk about these things reminds me that this is a great piece of advice for somebody who wants to write a book or an album for that matter, uh, who wants to be creative, uh, do something like that. Don't 
how do I put it? Um, here, I'll put it very rudely. Get out of your mom's basement, you know, or yeah. whatever. Uh, right. Get out, do things, talk to people, experience things, go places to whatever degree you're able. Um, get out, and that will uh, help your creativity. Is that fair? What do you think? Absolutely. I mean, those are the experiences that are going to inform your art, right? No matter what yeah. it is, whether it's writing or some other medium. Absolutely. You know, I, I think maybe you can think of, you know, a handful of writers who lived kind of sheltered lives and maybe expressed an inner life that they had without having a lot of external experience victorian writers the bronte sisters right. who kind of sort of were like the governesses that they wrote about even though the characterization you know like in wuthering heights or one of these classic works is so amazing but i think that's really the exception right i mean it's kind of you write about what you know in a certain sense in terms of knowledge or feeling, you know, human emotion, it's not necessarily just facts or whatever, uh, but just experiences that you have and that you see uh, other people uh, having and emoting and expressing. Um, and I think that that's the kind of grist then that you use to weave the stories and, and tales that you come up with. And there's a lot of foreign service uh, authors, actually. Um, I'm certainly not, not the only one. There are so many that our little foreign service journal uh, that they call it uh, has like an annual uh, uh, piece on books that have been published that year uh, by foreign mm. service uh, authors. And man, they're all over the place. I'm not the only fantasy writer uh, in the foreign service. Uh, there are others. But you see, you know, novels that are speculative fiction novels, a lot of historical novels, you know, it makes sense based in a historical setting, nonfiction, you know, even poetry. It always amazes me when that uh, volume comes out every year and you kind of thumb through um, and see the things that people have come up with. And I think the commonality between all of them, you kind of know where they're coming from, right? They are mm. channeling these experiences that they have had all around the globe into this art form um, and, and weaving these stories, whatever genre they might be. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, by the way, I efforted this while you were talking a little while ago, The Killer Angels, that Gettysburg book. Right. Okay, I wanted yeah. to make sure I was clear. Right. That's Michael Shara. S A R A. Okay, okay. So when you said Shannara, of course, that right. broke my uh, fantasy brain. <laughs> Uh, no, it was not Terry Brooks. It was Michael right. Shara. So right. somebody wants right. to check out the Killer Angels. That's that's where that is. Anyway, okay. So let's then uh, set aside a few minutes and pitch your books specifically. Uh, your your books, like I said, the uh, Far Northern Land Saga. It starts with uh, an easy book to pronounce the mark of the bear clan and then it just it just goes off the rails <laughs> <laughs> so the heir of lemminkainen yep you got uh, it very good queen of pohoyola pohoyola right exactly oh, so close so my close, finish right. is so rusty anyway so people can can check these out but what are they going to find when they open up book one book one the mark of the bear clan Right. They're they going to be blown away and they'll never have read anything like it and they won't be able to wait to buy the next two books in the series. Okay? But um, yeah, so so what I did um, and I think that uh, this will really appeal to, uh, you know, fans of just broad based fantasy, classic fantasy, you know, in particular, uh, but also more contemporary and, and newer things as well. 
What I tried to do was to, um, you know, it's not a retelling of the Kalevala. Um, it was inspired by the Kalevala, but I took certain characters from Finnish folklore, Vinamoinen the wizard, uh, Lemminkainen, who's the great warrior in the saga. Uh, there's no Kalervo in there, uh, but uh, certainly the panoply of Finnish. They're not really gods in the Kalevala, but, you know, let's say those angelic beings, etc. cetera. Um, and Finland itself, right? I mean, the geography and, you know, the weather and the forest uh, and everything that makes Finland so unique. Um, I took those characters and I took that world and geography. Um, and then I created my own characters and my own narrative story arcs set in that world. Uh, and with those major characters from the Kalevala as part of the world and as part of the action. Um, my writing style, you know, is influenced by quite a few different authors. Um, in a certain sense, I think it's really more influenced by someone like Ursula K. Le Guin. Um, mm. And kind of the, you remember that classic Earthsea series? Oh, yeah. uh, that's one of those, you know, seminal fantasy works um, in the world that she created there. Um, and the Mark of the Bear Clan, and I'll give you just a little snippet of the way it starts off, um, is, is a little bit of that typical coming of age story uh, with several twists. Um, it, it starts off with uh, a Finnish girl, a small Finnish girl in the forest who has an encounter with a bear, which was very, very common uh, in uh, Iron Age Finland. And the story is kind of set in this mythical Iron Age Finland. So think 500 AD, 600 AD, 700 AD, something like that. Um, she's almost killed um, and she is survived and she is saved through an encounter and saved by Vinamoinen, the great wizard, right? Mm. Um, and in the course of being attacked by this mother bear uh, and then being healed by the wizard, um, there is a scar and a mark on her back, okay? Which looks exactly like the claw of the bear. This was historically the main totem that the Finnic peoples used. Uh, so the bear was uh, seen by Finns as an animal, you know, representing the heavens, basically representing God, right? It was a holy animal. They didn't even pronounce its name. It was taboo, karu. So it was something that you couldn't say because you might draw the spirit, you know, to you uh, in, in a malign way of some type. Uh, and so this mark that she has on her shoulder basically sets her off right on this saga uh, at a time when the Finnish mythic forces of good and evil, more or less, the main antagonist, Lohi, the personification of, you know, winter, which was so important to the Finns, right? How to survive, you know, year by year by year when the elements are so harsh. Um, the little girl finding herself setting off on something that the early Finns, the ancient Finns called the trail for singers, which basically means becoming a shaman, becoming mm -hmm. a singer, becoming a wizard in her own right, even though this was something that typically was a, a male thing. Uh, there were female shamans and she sets off down this trail and this path for singers. Uh, and for the rest of her life, that is what she is going to follow. So it's very heavy in characterization uh, a little bit like I mentioned, you know, Earthsea and kind of how Earthsea follows its main protagonist, 
over the course of years as a child, as a young man, et cetera, in different settings. Uh, my main character is Ula, um, and uh, Ula sets about that type of path um, and, 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 you know, in the end really grows into this personification of what I think the Finnish heroic spirit is. So if you're interested in Finland, if you love myth and folklore, um, and you think the Finnish connection with myth and folklore is cool, and if you like a style that's, you know, my agent described it as literary fantasy, there's some of that out there, there's not a lot of it, but I try to write sometimes almost in a poetic type of vein, um, and switch back and forth sometimes uh, between different points of view and between different styles, which my agent did not like, but fortunately the publisher <laughs> did and then decided to go with it. And, and I think it is something that uh, I, I like the voice uh, that I came up with uh, and that is very unique, just as Finnish myth is very unique. If you like those things, um, I think you'll really uh, enjoy it. You'll learn a tremendous amount about uh, Iron Age Finnish folklore. Um, and I think I've created a really cool story, too. It's quite a pitch. Uh, and this is, this is really, I, I love this coming hot on the heels of the conversations I've had with a few authors in the last few months um, who were writing from an Indian perspective. So a lot of, uh, you know, the Mahabharat and, and uh, Indian folklore and myths and uh, retellings and uh, and adjustments that they made for their stories. Um, and it, we just published, I think it was actually, gosh, was it the last episode I published? Uh, an episode about comparative mythology with mm. a couple of um, Indian American authors. And um, this is just, it, it's kind of reminding me as you talk about these things, how many of these elements are all over the place, all over the world, but you get just that slightly different flavor. You mentioned uh, earlier in the conversation uh, being in was it, in Thailand and uh, dealing with refugees there and how that um, you interpreted that in a slightly different way. You know, just, hey, put it in, in snow and, and right. give them reindeer right. and snow and all that stuff where you just mm -hmm. kind of you change the flavors, uh, you change the direction you come at certain um, elements or tropes from. And suddenly you have a fresh, interesting, different story that's telling you kind of the same basic things about human nature, about yourself, about right. your life. Uh, that I universal that story, story, as it were, right? Yeah, the one exactly. story, it comes in so many different flavors, uh, but there is that universality to it. Um, and that is, uh, yeah, absolutely what I was, what I was striving for. Yeah, it's... I, I and I I adore that sort of thing. Go to a, a Native American museum in the southwestern United States. Okay, I've been to several. I'm from Utah. Okay, so we've got lots of those. Very familiar with that. And then when I visited, uh, well, I haven't been to Finland yet, but uh, when I visited Sweden and learned about the Sami people, the far I far do. northern uh, kind of yeah, indigenous yeah. folks up there, uh, seeing the the just unbelievable similarities you know you go to one museum and then you go to the other and you're like wait a minute which museum am i in it takes you a second and right, just, right. flavors are a little bit different but it's uh um it, it felt very similar anyway sorry i'm rambling now but i just love this idea that you can have that, that, that I specifically, I can have a conversation with these Indian American authors and then uh, have a conversation about Finnish 
uh, epics and myth and it's all kind of blending together and forming this really fun melange in my brain. So cool. I cool. encourage everybody to go check it out. It's uh, the Far Northern Land Saga. The first book is The Mark of the Bear Clan. So go check that out. Uh, and when you do, folks, make sure you let me know. So tag me on Twitter, go on Instagram, or especially join us on Discord, where you can uh, jump in the conversation, talk about this episode and any others. Uh, and let me know if you pick up this book and give it a try. I'd love to hear your experience with it. I know I'm going to. Uh, I, I like the cover and I know my daughter is going to like it as well. So maybe we'll give Danny. it a shot together. Um, cool. Speaking of which, before I cut you loose, David, I'm just going to remind everybody to go to thelegendarium.com, which is where you can find uh, past episodes. You can find the calendar with future episodes, as well as the link to join Discord and join this conversation. You can also find the link to our Patreon page where you can support this show if you enjoy what we do, and we appreciate those who already do so. Otherwise, hit the show notes for this episode. I'll link to David's books. And uh, yeah, I, I think I'm good. David, any parting thoughts? Any Anything burning left unsaid that we need to get to? Keep the faith, everybody. There you go. All right. Thanks very much, David. And uh, have a good one. Bye.